Welcome to Compounding Capital, a podcast where we dive into the discovery process and talk to some of the leading minds in investing to help you compound your capital. This podcast is for entertainment purposes only and should not be relied upon as a basis for investment decisions. Discovery and podcast guests may maintain positions and securities discussed in this podcast. Discovery is suitable for wholesale investors only. Past performance is not indicative of future performance. Welcome, my name is Chris Bainbridge and I'm joined by my co-host Mark Devisic. How are you going, Mark? Well, thanks. After a whirlwind trip to Australia, how are you? Yeah, it was a great trip. We had over 110 company meetings in August and we spent this week on the road in Oz doing further work on the best of them. One great idea per trip equals success. And if you find two, you're really making money. I'm excited to say that we've got the latter. Given reporting season, this episode will again be compact. Markets pulled back in August. Do you want to share a brief summary of how things went? August was reporting season, so nearly all the Australian companies in the portfolio reported their full year numbers. What we saw was some extreme moves on the day of results, often which were reversed in subsequent trading sessions. We've had a few own goals during the month, and it felt like an environment we could have done better. Many companies had low expectations heading into results, so slight incremental optimistic data points were often met with positive share price reactions. Despite some poor execution, the Founders Fund was up 2.3% versus our benchmark, the ASX Small Ordinaries Accumulation Index, which was down 0.9% in NZD terms. In the 11 months since inception, the Founders Fund is up 48% versus the benchmark, up 6.4% in NZD terms. Interest rate expectations now appear to be peaking, which gives investors more certainty around valuations and the confidence to deploy incremental capital into the market. Sediment should improve from here and may provide a tailwind to returns going forward, given the lackluster performance of the index so far. Chris, what were your thoughts? I completely agree. It was certainly a month where we should have done better. Pedestrian performance in August has really sharpened our focus. We've cut the number of positions, concentrating back on just those best ideas. It's a process which has worked well today and it's a process that I believe will work well moving forward. Do you want to touch on one of the companies which contributed positively to performance in August? Yes, contributor for the month was Aussie Broadband, another founder-led business. Aussie Broadband ticker ABB celebrated its 20th year in business this year, and the founder and CEO Phil Britt took a well-deserved sabbatical for three months before coming back to present the full-year result. They achieved $89 million EBITDA at the top end of their upgraded profit guidance range of 85 to 90 million, and the pleasing aspect of the result was a significant free cash flow generation. So what do they do? ABB operate a, as a retail service provider within the hyper-competitive national broadband network in Australia. Similar to New Zealand, where Chorus has built the majority of the fibre backbone infrastructure in Australia, it is the NBN, a government-owned entity that owns all the fibre. Retail providers then resell these NBN services under their own brand to consumers in Australia. ABB is known for its quality service and offering. Its call centre is entirely based in Australia while the industry trend has been to outsource to low-cost countries such as the Philippines. This is a reason why ABB has been voted the most trusted telco in Australia for many years. ABB skews towards premium users who are typically after this much faster and reliable internet connections. So what's changed over the last few years with ABB? Specific to ABB, the key change is its enterprise and government strategy. The enterprise and government sector is higher margin than residential, has lower competitive intensity and offers more certainty as business customers are less likely to switch providers for a cheaper price. ABB accelerated this entry into its space in 2021 with the acquisition of Over the Wire. At its August result, ABB announced it had over 10 million of new revenue signed 
but not yet provisioned in the enterprise and government space, which will come on progressively over FY24. Another aspect worth noting is the rise of challenger brands in the residential space. ABB, along with the other challenger brands like Superloop, are taking share off the incumbent stalwarts like Telstra, Optus and Vodafone TPG in both the residential and commercial market. Those three incumbents control 77% of the residential MBM market, compared to ABB, which is the largest challenger, with only 7.6% of the market. There is a long runway of growth ahead, especially when challenges are over-indexing on their market share of high-speed plans, which earn superior returns. There are some other factors to consider for the telco industry. Firstly, there is the threat from 5G. In NZ, 5G wireless broadband penetration is around 15% of all broadband subscribers, and the UBS forecasts this to rise to 26% by FY30. This is more a substitution for low-speed broadband plans, but is also much more affordable. Similar dynamics are also taking place in the US. The other issue with telco industry is there's large capex outlay for infrastructure, and this often means free cash flow generation is poor. To afford the network spend, you either have to get big or get bought out. This is why the telco industry is notorious for consolidation of the listed players. In recent years, we've seen Vodafone and TPG merge. Prior to that, TPG purchased IANET. Vocus swallowed M2 Telecom, and then it was brought itself by Macquarie and Aware Super. And more recently, we've got a live deal, Superloop and Symbio uh, entertaining a proposed merger. And of course, last year, ABB and Over the Wire merged. We hope ABB can continue to take market share and get big rather than get brought out before it has realised its potential. We had a larger number of detractors than usual in August. Do you want to share one with us? One detractor in August was Domino's Pizza. Domino's is an Australian success story. From a small Brisbane pizza chain of just 25 stores in 2001, material lender Don Mage has built Domino's into a $5 billion global growth company. DMPs a capital-light franchisor model with an attractive growth algorithm driven by a three to five year outlook of same store sales growth of three to six percent plus nine to twelve percent new store growth with modest margin expansion. Value accretive acquisitions of other international markets have also provided optionality for shareholders. Like most growth investments it hasn't been a smooth ride for shareholders. DMP was a COVID winner. Locked at home everyone ordered pizza. DMP's earnings exploded and its share price followed suit, rising from $50 in April 2020 to $165 just over 12 months later. Unfortunately, Domino's has spent the last 18 months slicing earnings expectations as rising input costs met falling consumer demand. Those headwinds culminated in Domino's updating the market in June. Domino's revised earnings expectations downwards taking the opportunity to announce a cost-out program to reserve the balance sheet and improve franchisee profitability. Our thesis was that this was the bottom. We were attracted to DMP as I met our four Ps. Firstly, potential. DMP's primary growth driver is its franchisees rolling out more stores. Domino's has built on its long-term success in the Australian New Zealand markets by delivering strong growth in Europe, which had entered in 2006, and Japan, which had entered in 2013. The runway for growth is long, with DMP targeting to double its store count from 3,782 today to 7,100 in 2033. Whilst the timing might be ambitious, the number of stores isn't, given offshore markets are far less 
penetrated by DMP compared to its home ANZ markets. Second, predictability. Pizza ordering is reasonably predictable and defensive. People always need pizza. People, DMP has been run by Don Mage since 2001 with the backing of Chairman Jack Carlin, Hungry Jack's fame, who continues to control 26% of the shares on issue. And lastly, profitability. DMP is highly profitable and cash generated with ROEs pre-COVID over 40%. As mentioned earlier, our thesis was that Domino's June update was the bottom. We expected the August result, which was kind of pre-guided, to be poor, but believed signs of improved trading in Australia and Europe would generate a re-rate. Domino's result was predictably poor, but its July trading update was much worse than our expectations. European sales appeared to be down 6% in constant currency, whilst franchisee profitability and Asia sales also missed our forecast. We formed the view that we were too early calling the turn and sliced the position. We were wrong. DMP actually re-rated as investors focused on the strong cash flow conversion and management talked to improving franchisee profitability, which wasn't yet evident in the numbers. The lesson is know what the market is looking for. The result was about balance sheet and not earnings, and a quality compounder will always find buyers if there are signs of green shoots emerging. This brings us to the most exciting part of our show, leaders and laggards of ASX. What do you have for us today? Got a leader. A leader during the month was Premier Investments, ticker PMV, which rose 16%. So Premier is a $4 billion market cap retailer on the ASX. Again, common theme here, it's uh, controlled by a founder, uh, 42% controlled by Solly Lou. And Solly Lou, along with fellow billionaire Brett Blundy, are two Hall of Fame retailers in Australia. Premier has a number of brands which are present in both Australia and New Zealand. And Smiggle, another brand which also operates more globally, especially in the UK and Asia. The two category killers in the portfolio are Smiggle and Peter Alexander. These, their niches are back-to-school stationery for Smiggle and designer sleepwear for Peter Alexander. They also have five other apparel brands which are less dominant, and these are Dottie, Jackie E, JJ's, Just Jeans, and Portman's, all familiar brands if you walk through any shopping centre. So what did Premier update during the month? Premier produced a strong update during the month, which was out of cycle. It typically only releases its full year in September. During the month, it advised that total sales were up 10% year-on-year, and EBIT was guided to a record $356 million, up 6% year-on-year. This was a strong update in an environment where retailers have been battling slowing sales and falling profitability. What was even more interesting was the announcement of a strategic review. The review was left open-ended, but could entail things such as capital management, divestments, and distributions. Typically, the words strategic review are a discovery red flag, but Premier could be different. The value unlock could come from listing Smiggle and Peter Alexander as separate companies with values potentially north of a billion dollars each. Premier also has stakes in other ASX listed retail companies such as Breville, which is worth $877 million, and Meyer, which is worth $165 million. These stakes could be distributed to shareholders rather than just incurring a tax liability if sold. Furthermore, the balance sheet has over $400 million in net cash and $100 million of market value of property. At the September result, there's likely the potential for another large, fully franked dividend 
given that they have 327 million of franking credits. So what is it worth now that we have a catalyst to realize value? Well, the quick math here is Smiggle and Peter Alexander combined could be worth roughly 2.2 billion. And you come to that valuation using 16 to 20 times PE multiples for those businesses. The core apparel brands could be worth roughly 800, which is around a 10 times PE. The Maya and Breville stakes, well, they're worth a billion dollars pre-tax combined. You've got the property at 100 million and the net cash of 400, as Chris said. This gives a total valuation of around $28 per share compared to the current share price of $25.60. In, re in retail, you could do worse than back a proven operator who has a lot of skin in the game. What do you have for us today? I'll balance things out with a laggard. Proving not everything associated with AI is a win was Appen. Appen was down 30% during August and is down 55% on a one-year basis. So what does Appen do? Appen provides labeled data sets for machine learning and artificial intelligence applications to the world's largest tech firms such as Facebook, Google, Microsoft and Amazon. So what does that actually mean? AI is everywhere from voice recognition in your car, well not my car but imagine you had a car less than 10 years old, to smart speakers such as Alexa, Google Home and to the algorithms that power search engines such as Google. AI improves by observing large volumes of training data. This training data is unstructured. Think about it, an image of a car or a boat doesn't have any meaning to a computer. That's where Appen comes in. Appen uses a global crowd workforce of say 1.2 million to label the data. This data labeling and annotation provides meaning to, the, to machine learning algorithms which are able to learn from it. Listing at just 50 cents in 2015, Appen quickly became a global leader in providing annotated data to the big tech firms. Revenue expanded 10 times from 50 million in 2014 to 536 million in 2020 with high teens margins. Appen benefited from the twin engines of growth with earnings and multiples both expanding and the share price hitting $40 in 2020. Three years later, Appen's trading for just $1.50, having lost 96% of its value. So what's happened? We participated in a number of expert calls on AI annotation at the time of the recent capital raise a few months back. There were two key takeaways. Less humans are now needed. Consistent with feedback from both customers and competitors of Appen are that less humans will be required for annotation going forward. Estimates range anywhere from 70 to 99% less. Indeed, one Facebook employee, which is currently Appen's largest customer, saw their spend with Appen going to zero. We can see evidence of this in Appen's most recent result with spend from Facebook down 34% in the first half, causing its global division revenue to drop from 137 million to 100 million. A great, a great focus on efficiency with 80% of Appen's revenue is derived from the large five tech firms. This was a tailwind from 2015, but has created a headwind as big tech looked to be more efficient. Generative AI is driving more investment, but feedback has been this has been focused on staffing skilled labor to produce better quality results and requires less crowdsourced labor. In mid-May, Appen raised $60 million at $1.85 at a steep 20% discount to the $2.30 closing price at the time. The funds were being used to fund a cost reduction program and provide balance sheet flexibility. 
At the time of the raising, Appen forecasts a recovery in revenue in the second half of calendar 23. However, when it updated the market just in August, it revised this guidance downward. Appen is now guiding to second half 23 revenue broadly in line with the first half versus the May outlook for improvement and for its cost out program to likely impact revenue in FY24. What, what about generative AI? Generative AI is about using data to create something new. Think of it like predictive text on your phone. Appen sees generative AI as a significant growth opportunity. The generative AI market is estimated to grow from 8 billion in 2021 to over 110 billion by 2030. High performing generative AI models rely heavily on human feedback. This is what Appen provides. Hence, it could be well placed to capitalize on growth in generative AI. However, it is a double-edged sword in that generative AI opportunities could be very meaningful, but the arrival of it has resulted in customers re-evaluating their overall AI strategy, which is impacting Appen's core business with project delays and or reduced scope. It also needs to be placed in context. Progress on generative AI is positive, but materiality is low. To date, Appen has delivered 42 LLM projects and has 40 deals in the current pipeline. However, Appen noted many of these projects are just a small value presently. So is Appen broken? Probably not. But we had dinner with one of Australia's best short sellers this week, and Appen ticked most of his criteria. With weakness already forecast in FY24, concerning channel checks, and an outlook that's murkier than rugby's breakdown rules, there's not a lot happening here in the next 12 months. Right, let's wrap it there. Thanks everyone for listening. If you have any follow-up, you can contact us at info at discoveryfunds.co.nz. Until next time, good luck compounding your capital.